This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. We're sponsored by Neomodern.com, bringing concierge photo printing and framing to everyone with a smartphone. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neomodern, and grumpy old man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Rubin. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Well, it's morning for you, but it is afternoon for me. Where? I'm on the East Coast at the moment. You're on the East Coast. So we've Coast. reversed our roles, yeah. It's so funny to have you on the Skype and our guest in the studio. I, I was thinking the same thing. It's so weird. It's, uh, I, I kind of like it. It's, it's exciting. I get to see a window into, the, into uh, their world and quite literally our world. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to introduce you to a friend of mine, um, Suzanne. This is Mark Citrit. Mark, Suzanne. Hi, nice Mark. to meet you. Um, <laughs> nice to meet you too. Mark is um, well, obviously a, a wonderful fine art photographer and educator of young photographers, I guess. Um, and uh, like a lot of the stories, like um, maybe even like Jason Langer from last week, uh, he has, is a, an artist who my family has collected, and I was familiar with his work long before I knew him as a human being. And uh, it, through the miracle of Facebook, I was living in San Francisco and a friend of mine had posted something and then all of a sudden Mark liked it. And I saw his name. I thought, how many Mark Citrits can there be? <laughs> and, it's like, and then found out he lived nearby. And next thing I know, we're on photo walks and hanging out at Cafe Trieste. And yes, stuff. as the old guy in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail says, I'm not dead. <laughs> <clears throat> no, you're not dead. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we, uh, we sit and talk about photography sometimes, and I think one of the things that, uh, that I hope we'll talk about today is sort of your feelings about, I don't know, we talk about conceptual photography. <laughs> <laughs> that makes you laugh. <laughs> yeah, because I don't have much to say about it. I don't understand the term, to tell you the truth. Well, I mean, is, like, would you say that all photography is conceptual or no photography? Well, all expression of any kind is conceptual. You have a concept of something, and uh, even if it's just a question, uh, and you start exploring it, whether you explore it with words, is photographs. Your, is your objection, uh, I, I know I have sort of an objection to it, is that like, I, I resist photography that demands explanation for you to appreciate it. Well, uh, that's... That's the case with me, too, but that goes, uh, well, let me just cut to the chase, really. I've, I've heard conceptual photography applied, especially in the early days when that term started being used a lot, I guess the 70s, uh, to just excuse, or not, in my eyes, to excuse bad craft, uh, or ignoring craft that is not important. Uh, and... I've come to mellow a little bit in that I don't think craft is what you should really be focusing on anyway, but uh, I don't know. It, it just struck me as, as kind of a, it's qualifying the work in a way that sort of implies what you were getting at, that it, it requires some kind of explanation. It's, it's funny and, to hear you say that you're not uh, uh, about craft because you're such a craftsman of photography. Your pictures are well-crafted. I think they're beautiful well, prints. And I think that, that uh, you can start ignoring craft when you've, you know, in quotes, mastered it. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I think that craft's important, but to make it an emphasis, I think, is missing the point. But most students I've dealt with are, are perpetually at a point in their lives where they're working on craft because they don't have the time to put in you know, the, the 10,000 hours, to use that kind of cultural icon, mm-hmm. uh, to get it down. Uh, and it does take a commitment. You know, I'm, I'm an amateur musician, and I know that I'll never put in that kind of time or effort, and all I can aspire to is kind of the upper echelons of mediocrity. Uh, <laughs> but that's okay. I, I, I don't want to do anything with my music other than... You know, upper edges of mediocrity, but upper I, echelons. I, I aspire to that amateur nature in photography. That it's not about commercialism or not about professionalism in the sense. I don't mean amateurish, but I do appreciate when people do it for the, just the love of it, without oh, any thought of the me end too. Result. And I, I encourage students who are looking to become professionals to reconsider that ambition, uh, because. You know, I had a, a geology professor in college. I, was, I studied geology initially, and he was that way with geology. He said, unless you just absolutely cannot see yourself doing anything else with your life, just pursue geology for the love of the knowledge and the inquiry of it. Because unless you get a teaching job, work for an oil company, you're always going to be struggling to make a living as a geologist. Uh, and I sort of have, have echoed that sentiment to photography students, to keep it amateur uh, does keep it free. I mean, there are times when, when I really don't want to do it, but I have to because I've got a gig coming up, a photo gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it could be a job that, other than the fact that I'm getting paid for it, has absolutely no appeal to me. Mm-hmm. But that's what professionalism is. You learn to, to adjust and still do your best work, even though you're not personally motivated. Uh, although paying bills is a very strong motivation. Very, very yeah. much so. Yes. <laughs> Why don't we back up a little bit? Could you tell tell? I mean, I know you a bit, but like, tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are, uh, how you got into photography, and and what your career has been. Well, like. my dad was an amateur photographer, and he had a dark room in the basement, and he uh, he would go on a backpack trip or something, come back with film, and and want to print some of it. He loved having help in the dark room because he thought it was the most boring work imaginable. So I. I don't know how old I was, 10, 12 maybe, I started helping him in the dark room. He would expose the paper and I'd run it through the trays. And he'd be talking about how tedious this was and I'd see the print coming up in the deck tall and I'd be just like, holy, (laughs) this is fantastic. So as a 10-year-old, I thought tedious meant exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, Disneyland is so tedious. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's... uh, so it, it, that was how I started, and then I started to photographing myself, and my dad would help me print my pictures. Uh, when I was 18, 19, I went on a backpack trip and took some pictures, and when I got home, my dad was away on his vacation, and I thought, well, I've seen him do this enough times. I'll try to do it myself without help. And in two weeks, I had ch- it changed my whole life. I was... I was going to be a photographer. I, I thought I was, you were going to say that like the roles came out black because you did something. No, well, they weren't that great, but just the effort in trying to make good prints from these meager negatives, uh, it just absolutely hooked me. Wow. The tedium of it was just... In, in, delightful. Delightful, yes. <laughs> no, I loved it. And I, I still have some of those prints from that, 
that summer of 68 when I was really wetting my, my feet and getting my toes wet. So um, you mentioned some uh, rock and roll stuff you'd done. Was that late 60s? Right. And at that point, music was my main passion. And so I took the camera to Fillmore and Avalon and uh, did some pictures of the dead and Quicksilver and uh, uh, the airplane. And as I was talking about before, I just rediscovered those negatives and scanned them and worked on them and posted some on Facebook. Uh, but then, and I look at them now and think, boy, if I'd kept this up, you know, <laughs> could have been a photographer. I, I could have had a, a book out there that might actually sell some copies. Because uh, there's, you know, as everybody knows, there's a market for that stuff now. Yeah. Uh, not that, you know, Jim Marshall is a good example because he was so good that you can't presume you were going to be in that that uh, yeah. that category. But there's certainly just the subject matter alone does get some attention these days. And so what was the path from that to like having someone represent you and being in a gallery? Oh, or something God, like that? that was decades later. Really? Uh, I got really interested, and because photography, everything shifted over to photography in my, in my heart, uh, I stopped taking the camera to Fillmore and the Avalon. I hardly went anymore. I just kind of lost... Uh, I didn't lose interest, but I, I, those Friday and Saturday nights I would go to the Fillmore or the Avalon, I'd be in the dark room. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's just so many hours. Uh, and then started photographing landscape. I grew up in a Sierra Club family, so I, I got lots of Sierra Club bulletins to look at, and my dad was a backpacker, and that's how I sort of got in the darkroom to begin with. Uh, and the obvious person to look at was Ansel Adams. And the next summer, through a strange series of events that don't bear retelling, uh, I signed up for his workshop in Yosemite, oh. summer of 69. Uh, Initially, I thought, you know, I'm just a beginner. How could I presume to take an Ansel Adams workshop? But somebody said, I don't think they put any kind of qualitative restrictions on it. If you happen to sign up before it's full, you're in. Uh, so I did, and was just kind of a sponge. I loved that. Uh, and it wasn't just Ansel Adams. I, I see you have a Perkle Jones photograph on the wall. Perkle was one of the people who really influenced me a lot in those workshops. Mm -hmm. Al Weber, uh, those are the main two. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then it just became my my full-time thing. You know, I, through the 70s, I photographed pretty much nonstop working other types of jobs. I wasn't really, I wasn't making money with it at all. Uh, But in the 80s, I started, uh, I hung out a shingle and started doing commercial photography. Started with public relations photography because that's kind of the easiest, lowest rung on the ladder. Mm-hmm. Uh, just bill hourly and uh, photograph ribbon cuttings and luncheons and you know, I got to meet Willie McCovey and <laughs> <laughs> Diane Feinstein at fundraisers and things. Uh, but my, my main focus with the camera, no pun intended, was, uh, was large format. So I'm trying to think what kind of commercial photography lends itself to large format and architecture kind of came to mind. My mother's an architect mm-hmm. and uh, long retired, but she's 101. Your mom is 101. <laughs> yeah, and actually wow. she's, she's not fully retired. When her, some of her grandchildren want to remodel their kitchens or something, she sits down at the drawing board and comes up with ideas for them. Wow. Uh, but in any event, 
uh, I felt like I had a, an inkling of what architecture was about and uh, started, and because my mom had been an architect, she, she hadn't really been practicing by the, by the 80s, uh, but she knew a lot of architects who were still in practice, so I figured that's my foot in the door to at least get them to take a chance on me. And, What's so uh, interesting, it, yeah. I mean, your work, you look at, when I look at your photographs, they almost, um, it's not the word that would have come to mind first, but they almost have this architectural quality. I mean, yes, you, you've shot buildings, but you've, you know, with the forest and the dunes, I mean, the dunes especially, it's like they simultaneously have this, like, almost sensual quality of, like, is that a thigh or a navel or a waist? And then you, then it also sort of feels like it's so, it's framed in a way that it also feels, like, solid, even though it, 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 it looks soft, but it feels so nicely framed. Um, it's like hearing that your mother was an architect is almost, it makes sense. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh I consider all of my photographs landscape photographs. No matter what yeah. they are. Yeah, the, the, uh, in fact, on my website, I have an essay called Architectural Geology, which sort of talks about that. Uh, and if anybody logs on and reads that, you'll probably, I might get 10 total readers of, of that essay. I used to hand them out when I taught at UC Extension. I'd hand them out in first class, and uh, nobody ever read them. Well... People don't I, read anymore. People don't read anymore. I'd like to think that's the reason. It's not. I don't want to take it personally, but no, I don't think it's a personal thing. Yeah, the uh, to me, it's all it's all landscape. And uh, there's a book written by Stuart Brand, who was the Whole Earth Catalog founder, mm -hmm. uh, called "How Buildings Learn." Mm -hmm. And I, I, book. I yeah. read that and and thought about it at the time I was formulating what became architectural geology, and thought that yeah, buildings age just like a mountain, just like, you know, they, they you know, I, like I said, I studied geology. Mm -hmm. uh, there are forces that raise the landforms and there are forces that erode them. And it's exactly the same thing with buildings. The force that raises them is humanity and the forces that erode them are like also humanity, but society. the same things, the same things that erode mountains, the weather, the wind, the sandstorms, you know, it, they erode just like, uh, like a mountain does, but you don't live in a mountain, so you don't hire a contractor to fix the damage the last storm did mm -hmm. uh, on a mountain. <laughs> what and um, uh, my thoughts are going a couple of ways. One is you just came back from a residence in artist residency in Zion National Park. Yeah, what was that like? That was absolutely fabulous. Uh, I was asked to apply for that by one of the rangers at, uh, well actually the director of the museum at Zion. Uh, and I did apply and I got the residency. I wanted to get it, they had four slots throughout the year and I wanted the February slot because I don't like crowds, I don't like hot weather, and I like bare trees. So February was perfect for that. <laughs> and you were just wandering around Zion and it shooting? Could, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I had an artist in residency three years ago in Yosemite, and, and it really hit me then that it's a, it's a gig where your only responsibility is to make your own pictures in a place that you would you know, love to be, and here you get free room, not bored, but free room. Mm -hmm. uh, the one in Yosemite was two weeks, and I felt like at the end of two weeks I was just getting warmed up. But the Zion one five weeks, five and a half weeks, that was really, 
uh, an ample amount of time for this sort of thing. Had a cabin called Grotto House, which is as deep in the canyon as any residence is. It's a mile, half mile past the lodge, uh, which most people who stay in Zion stay in the lodge. I was, or I was actually on the other side of the barrier they close when it's snowing. <laughs> so I, when it snowed and it, we got three big storms, so I kind of hit the jackpot. Uh, <laughs> When it stormed, they closed the gate, and I had the whole north end of the canyon to myself, with the exception of the people who walked up from the lodge. So what did you do with, I mean, for all of those photos that you must have taken, we talk a lot about just, you know, processing, and like it's not being a photographer or taking pictures, and it's just about clicking the button, it's actually kind of going back and selecting and editing and curating. How did you How did you start that process? How did you work through it? And then in the end, how many pictures did you sort of take out of those those in Yosemite and Zion? I don't really have any kind of aesthetic agenda when I photograph, so I don't start from the point of view of what am I after. I just go out and let my eyes... Uh, in the introduction to uh, one of, in my first book, I, I think I used the phrase, I just put my eyes in autopilot and let them settle where they will and uh, just take it on faith that that's somehow got some meaning for me and I photograph... I, do my best to make a good photograph of it. So I just started photographing, and then uh, the digital work I did, I shot both film and digital in Zion. Uh, You're okay with digital? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I love film, my roots are in film, uh, but digital is, it's another tool, and uh, it's... Really convenient. I think it's a little silly to ignore it simply on a, an allegiance to history sort of basis. It's, uh, yeah, I completely agree. It's, yeah. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever cared what kind of device someone shot on. When we look at pictures in a gallery I don't, or think of an artist, I think that the device of capture is interesting, but the, the, they're all prints is kind of a leveling... Yeah, I, I don't see the process, you know, quotes, capital P, process, as developing film, making a print. I see the, that's sort of the execution. The process to me is seeing. Do you see the world in an interesting way? Do you see aspects of the world in an interesting way or not? Mm -hmm. And Willie Ronis, who's one of my favorite photographers in the universe, uh, once made the comment, he said, you either see interestingly or you don't. End of story. <laughs> Seems a little brutal, but... Wow, like there's but, no hope for people who are just starting out and don't have it? I guess. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's his, that was his attitude. But he was a very uh, gracious and, and liberal-minded photographer. Uh, and I don't, I don't claim to go that far myself. I think you can learn to, to release your inner eye. Mm -hmm. uh, but his point is... is the basic point of you either see something interestingly or not, I, I subscribe to. I was going to say, how do you feel your pictures have changed over the course of your career? Then, if it's like you, if you, if you start seeing interestingly, um, do they get better, or is it just you change what you're looking at? I don't think I change what I'm looking at. Uh, I sort of years ago I kind of came up with this idea that as a photographer. One is, I mean, I'm making it the general, one is born whole, but to make it personal, I was born whole as a photographer. I, I had my way of looking at the world well in place before I picked up the camera. Mm -hmm. and, and the camera is demanding. Photography is demanding as a medium. So, you know, 
the craft is important, and, but the craft is also involves seeing, which I think is the main process. Uh, it's very difficult sometimes to find the place to stand, the, the light that will reveal what it is that you respond to. Mm -hmm. uh, the brain is a great editor, and you can see something in terrible light, standing in the wrong place, and get the full impact personally, emotionally. But to get that in a photograph, so it conveys that to the, the uninvolved viewer, is a totally different matter and requires a lot of awareness of, of how the photograph works. Uh, Gary Winogrand once made a great comment that he, he likes to photograph because he wants to see how something will look in a photograph. That's, a <laughs> that's not a direct quote, but that's the idea of it. And there's a whole lot to that. Uh, things look different in a photograph than they do in real life. I think beginners are often uh, frustrated that they see something that looks so amazing. They have that emotional impact and they take a picture of it and it, they somehow have failed to capture the thing that, that emotionally impacted them when they saw it and, they, and the disparity is problematic. They're yeah. not sure how to overcome that. Where, is it where I stood? Is it my camera? Do I need a better camera? Or am I just a lousy photographer? Like, how do you... Well, you know, photography is... The magazines, the websites, and everything, they're all geared around selling stuff. So do I need a better camera is the first question that a lot of people are assaulted with. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the, the least of the problems. Uh, any camera can make a good picture. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you get better, you want a better camera just so it, it, it's a better machine you're working with. It's no accident that Salgado and Cartier-Bresson and all these people use Leicas. Uh, they could have done the same pictures with a Minolta probably, but you know, there's something about the sensual feel of a beautiful machine. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's, that's a different issue. Uh, do you use a Leica? When I shoot 35, I do, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love it. This, when I hear that little click of the shutter, it's just a little sensual <laughs> rush every time. I just love that sound. On the other hand, my medium format camera is a Mamiya 6, which I think is a magnificent camera. But Hasselblad users, which would be the equivalent medium format to what Leica is in 35, really look down their noses at Mamiya's. Oh, the lenses are poor, and the, <laughs> they, you know, and all this stuff. Well, you know, none of that's true, but but the feeling is there, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I think that kind of thought is what produced the backlash of the Holga and Diana camera. Mm -hmm. uh, obsession a lot of people have the holga uh, just for people who don't know it's a plastic cheap camera that um people have sort of a, a fandom of and they take pictures yeah. with this just non-consequential device with a plastic lens even I yeah think. plastic lens i had a student who uh, had a linhoff 4x5 a leica 35 and a plastic diana camera <laughs> And his uh, pictures with the Diana camera were really vibrant and just kind of free-spirited. And the things he did with the Linhoff and the Leica, it was like he was intimidated by the quality of those tools. So my, you know, I'd like to think the good advice I gave him was treat your Leica and your Linhoff like you treat the Diana. You know, it's, don't be intimidated by the camera because when you use that that Diana and, and you've got this cheap apparatus in your hand, you do really freewheeling, wonderful work. Mm -hmm. The stuff with the Leica and the Linhoff was technically excellent, but kind of devoid of spirit. 
Interesting. Interesting. So one of the reasons that <clears throat> I called you the other day to say, hey, let's do this show was at least in part inspired by the passing of Robert Frank, mm -hmm. um, who is a, you know, the paragon of, I don't know what he was the paragon. He's just like this inspirational photographer for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, how did you feel like when, I mean, of course he was, he was getting kind of old and he was always kind of a curmudgeonly guy, but his work did, uh, were you a fan of Robert Frank? Huge fan. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that whole genre of photography, even though I don't do it myself. I mean, I mentioned Willie Ronas. He's in that same, sort of in that same genre. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's one of my absolute favorites. But Robert Frank, you know, he died. But for all practical purposes, not to be cold-hearted about it, I've paid very little attention to, to anything but his work. I didn't know him. He wasn't a friend. He wasn't a teacher. I'd never even seen him in person. Uh, he's just as alive for me now as he's ever been. Interesting. Uh, and in some ways, he was just as dead to me as he is now because I wasn't paying attention to him as a person. I mean, yeah, it's, it's sad when somebody you respect and have drawn inspiration from does pass, but uh, the inspiration and the, what they had to offer is, has, is still there. I mean, I don't... When I listen to Beethoven, I don't lament the fact that he's died. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very moved, you know, moved fact, by it. It's pretty amazing that as photographers, that's all we would really ever hope for is that we live on in our pictures. Yeah. And so he crushed it, right? Yeah. And as a geologist, I know that, uh, not a geologist, but <laughs> as a student of geology, I know that none of it really matters ultimately. Our, the whole wink of an eye of human history will be come and gone before, you know, very long, well, in ge geologic time. In geologic time, none of this may matter, right. I think. In, but even from the perspective of geologic time, I just came back from Burning Man, and it's a, a city is created and then gone in a matter of weeks. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like a, a Buddhist sand painting where people <laughs> have worked carefully to make it, and then it just is wiped off. In fact, the, it's designed to be ephemeral, but... But maybe all of life is designed to be ephemeral, and our yeah. photographs are this sort of maybe vain attempt to hold on to moments, both that we existed and that it existed. Sure. Yeah, it, it's not only vain, it's a, it's a symptom of, of uh, how to put it, kind of a deep-rooted, genuine insecurity. You know, we don't matter, but... We do. I, look what I made. You know, that's what, what I think the, the subtext of all art is. Look at me. Look what I did. You know? I existed for a moment. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's just the human condition. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's an interesting thought, but I don't know if I completely agree. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I feel like with art or making something or it's like wanting to share your point of view or you're wanting to share something like I I love your kind of classical music reference of it is you know it is as li alive now as if as if you were alive composing it but it's <laughs> just don't you feel like you're trying to make something or trying to capture or share what you're seeing or your way you know you're born with this way of seeing that you're trying to share it with others definitely and and the fact that you disagree with that doesn't bother me at all because a lot of the time i disagree with that uh, <laughs> i don't really have any any uh, strong ideological stances uh, you know why i photograph is i just feel compelled to i see the world 
I see things in the world that just fascinate me. I think the world is a visually, endlessly fascinating place, and uh, I just like to see it and in, in, be able to hold it in my hands. It's like Rilke says that like you, a, a work of art is great if it. I mean, if you can't not do it. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, we yeah. create art because we can't not create art. There's no other agenda. I just can't. This is what I do. Well, it's, it's like my geology professor's admonition that if you can't see yourself doing anything else, <laughs> then do it. I, I was going to ask if you could describe your work in one word. <sighs> what word would you use? I'm at a loss. Uh, I find it hard to describe it in any number of words. One is, right, you know, it's like Woodrow Wilson once said, if I'm asked to give an hour speech, I can do it off the cuff. If I'm asked to give a 10-minute speech, I'll need a week to prepare it. And if I'm asked to give a one-minute speech, I'll need a month. <laughs> yeah. I would have written a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one word. I'm sorry. I haven't got a clue. It's funny. When I moved to California, I, I grabbed... And when I first came out here, I grabbed four or five pictures that I could carry that I wanted to have up around me. And at that time, I didn't know you lived in San Francisco. I didn't know that I would ever meet you. But it turned out that of the half dozen photographs I brought to San Francisco with me, four of them were yours out of the, our entire collection. It was hmm. the uh, deviant chain link <laughs> and a couple of the Bay Area and the, and the tennis fence. The tennis, oh, tennis net. Yeah. Well, where did those works come from? Uh, actually, both of those, interestingly, had to do with my kids. Uh, even Chain Link, I was at one of their Little League games and just wandering around the playground, saw the Chain Link fence and, and this odd link in it, Deviant Chain Link. And the uh, tennis net was, my boy, one of my boys was taking karate lessons on Terravel Street. And uh, while he was in there, I just took a walk on a foggy morning, and Lincoln High School was right up the hill. And uh, there was the tennis courts. They were open. Uh, but to get back to Suzanne's thing, just very quickly about the one word. I, I'm still at a loss for one word, but, but this may help answer that a little bit, is that the, to me, the, the best compliment that's paid my work is when somebody looks at a photograph and says, my God, I walk by that every day. And I never thought there was a picture there. Hmm. And uh, to me, the, it's the ordinary stuff that is really fascinating to photograph. Uh, like Deanne Arbus said that she often felt that she sees things that if she didn't photograph them, no one would see them. Well, that's a point that I, I kind of came to independently, mm -hmm. is that uh, there's, there's two sides to that. One is that what you just said and the other is that the realization that you see something and you realize that if I don't make that picture it's never going to get made <laughs> yeah you know so in that sense there's kind of an obligation to do it but that's taking yourself a little too seriously maybe to say there's an obligation but if you feel that inner compulsion which I definitely do mm -hmm. uh, then go ahead and click the shutter and then if your craft is good you'll have a print in your hands sometime later that reflects that. Uh, Elliot Erwitt, who you've got. I love that guy. Yeah, I love him too. Uh, he, he made a comment which I use in one of my books uh, as a preface to my introduction to the book, uh, which is photography is simply a matter of noticing things. And you know, think about that. We all see 
pretty much the same world, but we don't all notice the same things. The things we notice, that implies a kind of uh, a moment of communication between whatever it is out there and you, your brain, through your eyes. Mm -hmm. So you notice something, and that sort of is the kickstart to uh, making a photograph. Noticing. Yes, yes. Um, so you know J Jason Langer? Yeah, not real well, but yeah, when he was living down here, I we'd get together now and again. Um, he he had posted something about uh, about the death of Robert Frank, mm -hmm. and you and I were sort of talking about that, and it was we were uh, exploring this idea of an homage right. that Jason was feeling like he he'd posted a picture that he felt was sort of an homage to uh, a Robert Frank, I think New Orleans shot, um, and and you were dismissive of an homage like do you understand? no no not oh. at all dismissive i think homages are wonderful oh. uh, i've got lots of them uh, whatever the title of the print is there's always a parentheses you know After. homage to whoever oh, right usually use the initials just to be enigmatic about it <laughs> uh, but what constitutes an homage to me is is uh, a work that either was inspired by someone in particular or that reminds you of someone in particular and Jason's ambivalence about using that picture as one of his own I understand because if it does bring to mind another photographer you don't necessarily want to have that be your your public uh, display of your photographs of your work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the other hand uh, it's a really I find it looking at my own work uh, the ones I have those subtitles of homage to as kind of an interesting group in and of themselves uh, in that it, it tells me about what I notice in terms of other people's work uh, mm -hmm. I you know I think of Lee Friedlander uh, Elliot Erwitt I've got a, a couple of homages to Elliot Erwitt I, I can't take a picture if I see a chain link fence and I see something interesting happening in the, a disruption of the pattern of, of links, my first instinct is like, oh, that's cool. I think I'm going to frame that up. And it, almost immediately, it's like, but it's not as good as Deviant Chainlink. Or it's not. <laughs> I mean, so if I did it, it would feel derivative, and I would reject it. Well, here's an interesting <laughs> thing. I, you know, Deviant, I've done lots of Chainlink pictures. It's a real theme in my work. And then I find out that Lee Friedlander has a whole book of, of, chain? of chain link. Great, there you go. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I think Deviant Chain Link stands on its own, but most of the other ones could easily be uh, poor copies of, of mm -hmm. Lee Friedlander. <laughs> so, you know, Deviant Chain Link, like I said, it, it stands on its own. I, I'm not going to retire it now that I know of uh, Lee Friedlander's mm -hmm. work, but all the others pretty much are, are retired. Uh, I feel like Deviant Chainlink gets kind of grandfathered in because I didn't even know about Friedlander's <laughs> body of work at the time. But Friedlander's like Jim Marshall. You know, he's just so good at seeing the way he sees and the things that he sees that an homage would have to be a private one because you can't copy that kind of distinctive vision without it just obviously being a bad copy. I feel that way about uh, chipping paint. I think when I see chipping paint, it's a very common trope in people's photography. But I go to Jerome, Arizona. You know, Siska, the, is that Siska? Siska, yeah. yeah. Just I think he crushes it, yeah. right? And it's the lighting. Like I've seen a number of different prints of that that he's done, and they're uh, 
there's like some of them just glow. It's just a magical print, so it can be done. But it's not just by virtue of a picture of chipping paint. It's the print. It's like a great yeah. print of it. Well, minor white too. I think that they stand as as kind of opposite ends of the same magnificent spectrum you know, mm-hmm. of peeling paint. Yes, uh, Siskins and minor whites. Uh, yeah, and you know, go there at your own peril. <laughs> I've got lots of peeling paint pictures and I won't show any of them because of that. Well, I think it, it, this is something that uh, Jason spoke of in our show, which was when you see that you're drawn to this image of chipping paint, <clears throat> pursue it, explore it fully, and then take a look at all the work that people have done of chipping mm-hmm. paint and sort of see what the range is of this kind of image and then ask yourself what you're bringing. Are you... What are you bringing to it that's new or different uh, or better or whatever you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, well, I actually posted on Facebook this morning a picture of peeling paint. Did you? But peeling paint is kind of the subtext. It's not really the, the main subject. Well, it was a sign that. in Winnemucca, uh, truck parking only, uh, a painted sign. And it was a very old painted sign. <laughs> and the paint was magnificent. The light was just tangent to it. It was fabulous. And I did a whole lot of photographs of different letter combinations inside that sign. Uh, the one I posted today was, uh, you know, the, some of the central letters in parking is K-I-N. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, that's, the peeling paint is underneath all of that. And, I, and the silly joke I put in the, the posting is, and they say you can't choose your own kin. <laughs> <laughs> That's Anybody who knows me knows my jokes are terrible, but I can't resist them. You must be a teacher. Mark, I wanted to ask you a question. We, you know, I've heard you talk about just the different photographers that inspire you and, and how you see things. And I, I really love looking at your work, especially because so many of them take place in San Francisco. And I don't, you know, it's like I wouldn't have seen that. I, I wouldn't have spotted that. But having those things on your walls, it's great to kind of like see them again and again. Mark, what I wanted to ask you is, you know, what do you like looking at? You're inspired by all these photographers. Um, what is on your wall in your home? I only have one of my photographs on the wall. It's a triptych. It's in my Halcott Center book. It's the postscript of my Halcott Center book. And Halcott Center was the town in upstate New York, the, the mountain valley I lived in. And it's... It, there's no particular reason it's the one that's on the wall. It just happened to get hung at one point and, and stayed there. Most of what I've got on the wall are either my teachers or people who've inspired me. I have this triumvirate of my big three, uh, who are Eugene Atjay, Joseph Sudek, and uh, Frederick Evans. Hmm. And I've managed to acquire a print of each of those by trading with various dealers who uh, handle my work. Uh, can you describe the, the Sudek? The Sudek is one of the Magic Garden series. It's not a published one, as far as I know. Uh, two chairs uh, with a lamp, an outdoor dark photograph. There's a handwritten note on the back of the print, and I photocopied it, sent it to a friend who spoke Czech, and she had no idea what it said. <laughs> she said Sudek's handwriting was notoriously horrible. Even her mother, who was born in Czechoslovakia, couldn't decipher it. Uh, but, of course, he was a left-handed person because his right arm was blown off in World War I. So he was not a natural left-handed writer, so he's excused for having poor hand, uh, penmanship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Frederick Evans uh, I, is a, a little cathedral detail, not a 
well-known Frederick Evans. Again, not not published as far as I know. Uh, and the At Jay's most recent one. I thought I would never get an At Jay because they were kind of out of my price range, even in trade. Uh, but a dealer friend in New York, Tom Gitterman, uh, was very accommodating, and, and I hope he did well out of it because I had a couple of Harry Callahan prints that I acquired through various means that I wasn't in love with, although I do greatly admire Harry Callahan, but as a currency to acquire an Atjay, I was willing to part with them. Uh, and what's the Atjay? The Atjay is a, a fountain in a wall detail. It is published in, I think, the first of the Metropolitan Museum of Art series of four books on Atjay. Then I have a bunch of Willie Ronuses, because for a long time his work was vastly underpriced. Uh, and I had a dealer who handled both me and Willie Ronas, and he was very slow in paying me. So I, said, I finally said, uh, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I don't want cash. Pay me in Willie Ronas prints. And so <laughs> I think that's a way of photographer. I think I would encourage all photographers to think about trading their pictures for other photographers' pictures. Yeah, well, I, I really needed the cash, but I wasn't going to get it. So... Uh, I just kind of put them on the spot and uh, ended up with some Willie Ronas's. One or two of them I did buy from uh, Fetterman in L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, those were the first ones. And then after that, I, uh, but then at some point, just before he died, his prices went way up uh, from 1200 to 6000 which was entirely justified on today's market. Uh, but at that point, I stopped acquiring them. Uh, I've got a couple of Wright Morris's because a friend of mine uh, was the executor of Wright Morris's estate. And then I have my own teachers. I have a couple of Perkle Joneses on the wall and Al Weber, uh, some Ansel Adamses. Cool. Yeah. I think we should probably wind it down. I'd love to talk more about both conceptual photography and the way you teach students. And uh, maybe we could have you back on here now that we have yeah. a place for you to come to. I didn't have to make you Skype in, right? Yeah, it's great. And this hour of the day, it's not even hard to park in this neighborhood. That's very good. And I hope you'll feel free to come. Um, you can give workshops here, classes here. We have this the HD Buttercup living room area over there and over here. So we're trying to make it more comfortable. Mm -hmm. So hopefully you'll consider Neo Modern a place for you to well, thank you. home away from home. You I know? appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. Please leave reviews and ratings on iTunes, and don't forget to subscribe. We get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. If you know someone who might get something from listening to us, send them a link. Thanks to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music and all of you for hanging out with us. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about. Until next time.